I'm Mark Beattie and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Archives, Disease and Childhood. In this podcast I'm going to cover some of the content from the July edition of the journal. The first paper I'm going to cover relates to strategies to control pertussis in infants. So the background to this paper is that the UK is in the midst of a pertussis outbreak with the highest morbidity and mortality being in young unimmunised infants. Over the last 10 to 15 years, high vaccine coverage, the accelerated immunisation schedule and the inclusion of pertussis in the preschool booster have contributed to a major overall decline in incidence. However, pertussis remains the most common cause of hospitalisation and death from a disease potentially preventable through the current UK immunisation programme and continues to display three to four yearly peaks in activity affecting infants, adolescents and adults. In this issue, there's a leading article that looks at the evidence base for and potential strategies to control pertussis in infants. So the challenge is to improve individual immunity and thereby reduce infection and transmission. The potential strategies include Introduction of an adolescent pertussis booster to compensate for waning immunity. This has been done in the USA, Australia and France. Immunisation of close household contacts of newborn infants, basically cocooning, and immunisation of pregnant women. As the best potential option, and the reasoning for this is discussed in the paper, Immunisation of pregnant women during the third trimester has recently been introduced as an epidemic control measure in the UK. Evaluation of this by monitoring, coverage and impact on the disease incidence and immune response will be critical to inform the strategy for optimising pertussis control in the UK. The second article I'd like to cover relates to caesarean section and childhood obesity. So this has been debated for many years. There is considerable interest in perinatal risk factors for obesity and mode of delivery has been implicated, although the results are conflicting as a consequence of the significant potential for confounding. Fleming and colleagues in this issue examine the association between caesarean section and childhood obesity, stroke overweight, at age 10 to 11 in almost 3,000 mother-child pairs. By univariate analysis, caesarean section was associated with offspring obesity, odds ratio 1.49. However, when a multiple logistic regression model was used, adding in pre-pregnancy maternal weight, which is an independent risk factor for caesarean section, the odds ratio fell to 1.2, being 1.03 for elective caesarean section. It's a very interesting data set and it's important. What it shows is that caesarean section is not a risk factor for childhood obesity when the appropriate confounders are considered. It's interesting to go through the statistical methodology and to follow how the correct use of statistics influences the results so significantly. The third paper I'd like to cover relates to asthma and tobacco smoke exposure. So we all know that asthma is common in childhood and that tobacco smoke exposure is associated with less good control. 
And the implication of this is that a standard part of the history taking in the assessment of acute and chronic asthma is a smoking history. In this issue, McCarville and colleagues report data from a cross-sectional cohort of 466 children, 58% of whom had moderate or severe persistent asthma. Exposure to environmental tobacco was defined by parental report and salivary cotinine levels, cotinine being a biological marker of tobacco exposure. 50% of the 466 reported that at least one household member smoked, although this was not associated with either asthma severity or frequency of exacerbations. Salivary cottonine levels, however, were significantly associated with frequently reported exacerbations in the last 12 months. So many factors could potentially explain this. The authors, however, rightly point out that the use of a biological marker of environmental smoke exposure rather than reported household smoking alone and improved identification of asthma-related risk factors in the individual case and therefore have a potential to impact on the management of the individual with severe chronic asthma. The fourth paper I'd like to highlight relates to caring for children on home parental nutrition. There's little doubt that home parental nutrition has transformed the management of intestinal failure, enabling patients to be managed in the home setting. It does, however, present a not insignificant care burden for the parents. The disease course can be complex and the potential for multiple life-threatening complications is important, particularly life-threatening central line infections. In this issue, Zamva and colleagues highlight this, reporting two complex cases, both listed for intestinal transplantation, in whom the outcome improved following a period in foster care. The discussion highlights the often unrecognised parental burden of managing children with severe chronic illness. In the accompanying editorial, somewhat provocatively titled Health and Social Care Will They Work Together for Children Now?, these issues are explored further, highlighting the importance of managing such children with an appropriate care package, adequately resourced and adequately configured to deal with the child and family's continuing health, educational and social needs. The fifth article I'd like to highlight relates to rational prescribing. Just to briefly summarise... The World Health Organization estimates that over 50% of medications are prescribed, dispensed or sold inappropriately. It's a significant global health issue with considerable variation between different countries and many serious consequences including the widespread and increasing problem with antibiotic resistance. This report from The Gambia looks at 20 government-run health centres 2,400 patient encounters and shows that the median number of medications per encounter was two with antibiotics prescribed in 63% and micronutrients in 21.7%. This very high antibiotic prescription rate is mirrored in many other developing countries and the authors highlight the absolute need for higher quality evidence-based guidance and nursing and medical staff education so we can try and 
impact on this and impact on global health issues such as antibiotic resistance. I'd like to highlight three papers in the fetal and neonatal edition this month. Madarom and colleagues report the outcome at eight years in children with congenital diaphragmatic hernia. The relevance of gut microbiota in health and disease is explored in a leading article by Janet Barrington and colleagues from Newcastle. And the important issue of post-hemorrhagic dilatation, when should we intervene, is addressed in an editorial by Linda Rice, which accompanies a short report which investigates the role of neurophysiological parameters in the decision-making process. To read any of these articles in full, please access the July edition of Archives of Disease in Childhood. I'm Mark Beattie, and thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.